Ten, family. After Sia left, I rose early, intent upon finding Tavril before the day's visit to the salon. Despite his reassurance that I'd already met everyone who mattered, that had been in reference to the contest of heirs. In the matter of my mother, I hoped someone might know more about the night of her abdication. But I turned left where I should have turned right and didn't take the lift far enough down, and instead of Tavril's office, I found myself at the palace entrance, facing the forecourt, where my life's most unpleasant saga had begun. And Descartes was there. When I was five or six, I learned about the world from my Etempan tutors. There is the universe ruled by the gods, they told me. Bright Etempus is chief among these. And there is the world where the noble consortium rules with the guidance of the Aramary family. Descartes, the Lord Aramary, is chief among them. I had said to my mother later that this Lord Aramary must be a very great man. He is, she said, and that was the end of the conversation. It was not the words that had stuck in my mind, but the way she said them. Sky's forecourt is the first sight that visitors see, so it is calculated to impress. Besides the vertical gate and the palace entrance, a cavernous tunnel of concentric arches around which stands the intimidating bulk of sky itself, there is also the Garden of the Hundred Thousand and the pier. Of course, nothing docks at this pier, as it juts out from the forecourt over a half-mile drop. It has a thin, elegant railing about waist-high. This railing would do nothing to stop a person intent on suicide, but I suppose it provides some reassurance to everyone else. Descartes stood with Varane and several others at the foot of the pier. The group was some ways off and they had not yet seen me. I would have turned at once and headed back into the palace if I hadn't recognized one of the figures with Descartes and Varane. Jacarne, the warrior goddess. That made me pause. The other people present were Descartes' courtiers. I remembered some of them vaguely from my first day. Another man, not nearly as well-dressed as the rest, stood a few paces onto the pier, as if gazing at the view, but he was shivering. I could see that even from where I stood. Descartes said something, and Jacquard lifted a hand and conjured a gleaming silver pike. Pointing this at the man, she took three steps forward. The pike's tip hovered, rock steady despite the wind, a few inches from the man's back. The man took a step forward, then looked back. Wynne whipped his hair in a wispy cloud about his head. He looked Amun, or of some sister race. I recognized his manner, though, and his wild, defiant eyes. A heretic, flouter of the bright. Once there had been entire armies like him, but now there were only a few left, hiding in isolated pockets and worshipping their fallen gods in secret. This one must have been careless. You cannot keep them chained forever the man said. The wind carried his words toward me and away, teasing my ears. The protective magic that kept the air warm and calm within Sky apparently did not operate on the pier. Not even the Sky Father is infallible. Descartes said nothing to this, though he leaned forward and murmured something to Jacquard. The man on the pier stiffened. No, you can't, you can't. He turned and tried to move past Jacquard in the jutting pike, his eyes fixed on Descartes. Jacquard merely moved the pike's tip, and the man impaled himself. I cried out, putting my hands to my mouth. 
The palace entrance amplified the sound. Descartes and Varane both glanced back at me. But then came a sound that dwarfed my cry as the man began to scream. It went through me like Jacquard's pike. Hunched around the pike and clutching its shaft, the man's body shivered even harder than before. Belatedly, I realized that some other force besides his cry shook him. As his chest began to glow red hot around the pike's tip, smoke rose from his sleeves, his collar, his mouth, and nose. His eyes were the worst of it, because he was aware. He knew what was happening to him, knew it and despaired, and that, too, was part of his suffering. I fled. Skyfather helped me, but I could not bear it. I ran back into the palace and ducked around a corner. Even that did not help, for I could still hear him screaming, screaming, screaming as he burned from the inside out, on and on until I thought I would go mad and hear nothing more for the rest of my life. Thank all the gods, even Nahadoth, that it eventually ended. I don't know how long I crouched there with my hands over my ears. After a time, I became aware that I was no longer alone, and I lifted my head. Descartes, leaning heavily on a dark, polished cane, whose wood might have come from Dar's forest, stood watching me, Varane beside him. The other courtiers had dispersed down the corridor. Jacquard was nowhere to be seen. Well, said Descartes, his voice thick with derision. We see the truth of it now. It is her father's cowardice that flows strongest in her, not Aramary courage. That replaced my shock with fury. I leapt up from my crouch. The Dare were famous warriors once, said Varane, before I could speak and damn myself. Unlike Descartes, his expression was neutral. But centuries under the Skyfather's peaceful rule have civilized even the most savage races, my lord, and we cannot blame her for that. I doubt she has ever seen a man killed. The members of this family must be stronger, said Descartes. It is the price we pay for our power. We cannot be like the darkling races who gave up their gods to save their necks. We must be like that man, misguided though he was. He pointed back toward the pier, or wherever the dead heretic's corpse was now. Like Shahar, we must be willing to die and kill for our lord Etempus. He smiled. My skin crawled. Perhaps I should have you deal with the next one, granddaughter. I was too upset, too angry to even try to control the hatred in my face. What strength does it take to kill an unarmed man? To order someone else to kill him? And like that? I shook my head. The scream still rang in my ears. That was cruelty, not justice. Was it? To my surprise, Descartes actually looked thoughtful. This world belongs to the Sky Father. That is indisputable. That man was caught distributing forbidden books, books which denied this reality. And every one of those books' readers, every good citizen who saw this blasphemy and failed to denounce it, has now joined in his delusion. They are all criminals in our midst, intent on stealing not gold, not even lives, but hearts. 
minds, sanity, and peace. The Carter sighed. True justice would be to wipe out that entire nation, cauterize the taint before it spreads. Instead, I've merely ordered the deaths of everyone in his faction and their spouses and children, only those who are beyond redemption. I stared at Dakota, too horrified for words. Now I knew why that man had turned back to impel himself. Now I knew where Jacquard had gone. Lord Descartes did give him a choice, Varane added. Jumping would have been an easier death. The wind usually spins them into the palace's support column, so nothing hits the ground. It's quick. You! I wanted to put my hands over my ears again. You call yourself servants of Etempus? You're rabbit beasts! Demons! Descartes shook his head. I am a fool to keep looking for anything of her in you. He turned away then and began moving down the hall, slow even with the cane. Varane fell in beside him, ready to assist if Descartes stumbled. He looked back at me once. Descartes did not. I pushed myself away from the wall. My mother lived truer to the bright than you ever could. Descartes stopped, and for a heartbeat I felt fear, realizing I had gone too far. But he did not turn back. That is true, Descartes said, his voice very soft. Your mother wouldn't have shown any mercy at all. He moved on. I leaned back against the wall and did not stop trembling for a long time. I skipped the salon that day. I couldn't have sat there beside Descartes pretending indifference while my mind still rang with the heretic's screams. I was not Aramary, and would never be Aramary, so what was the point in my acting like them? And for the time being, I had other concerns. I walked into Tavril's office as he was filling out paperwork. Before he could rise to greet me, I put a hand on his desk. My mother's belongings, where are they? He closed his mouth, then opened it again to speak. Her apartment is in Spire 7. It was my turn to pause. Her apartment is intact? Descartes ordered it kept that way when she left, after it became clear she would not return. He spread his hands. My predecessor valued his life too much to suggest that the apartment be emptied. So do I. He added then, diplomatic as ever. I'll have someone show you the way. My mother's quarters. The servant had left me alone on my unspoken order. With the door closed, a stillness fell. Ovals of sunlight layered the floor. The curtains were heavy and had not stirred at my entrance. Tavril's people had kept the apartment clean, so not even dust most danced in the light. If I held my breath, I could almost believe I stood within a portrait, not a place in the here and now. I took a step forward. This was the reception room. Bureau, couch, table for tea or work. A few personal touches here and there. Paintings on the wall, sculpture on small shelves, a beautifully carved altar in the cinemite style. All very elegant. None of it felt like her. I went through the apartment, bath chamber on the left, bigger than mine, but my mother had always loved bathing. 
I remembered sitting in bubbles with her, giggling as she piled her hair on top of her head and made silly faces. No, none of that, or I would soon be useless. The bedchamber. The bed was a huge oval, twice the size of mine, white, deep with pillows. Dressers, a vanity, a hearth, and mantle. Decorative, since there was no need for fire and sky. Another table. Here, too, were personal touches. Bottles carefully arranged on the vanity to put my mother's favorites at the front. Several potted plants, huge and verdant after so many years. Portraits on the wall. These caught my eye. I went to the mantel for a better look at the largest of them. A framed rendering of a handsome blonde almond woman. She was richly dressed with a bearing that spoke of an upbringing far more refined than mine but something about her expression intrigued me. Her smile was only the barest curve of lips, and although she faced the viewer, her eyes were vague rather than focused. Daydreaming or troubled? The artist had been a master to capture that. The resemblance between her and my mother was striking. My grandmother, then. Descartes' tragically dead wife. No wonder she looked troubled, marrying into this family. I turned to take in the whole room. What were you in this place, mother? I whispered aloud. My voice did not break the stillness. Here, within the closed, frozen moment of the room, I was merely an observer. Were you the mother I remember, or were you Ara Mary? This had nothing to do with her death. It was just something I had to know. I began to search the apartment, it went slowly because I could not bring myself to ransack the place. Not only would I offend the servants by doing so, but I felt that it would somehow disrespect my mother. She had always liked things neat. Thus the sun had set by the time I finally found a small chest in the headboard cabinet of her bed. I hadn't even realized the headboard had a cabinet until I rested my hand on its edge and felt the seam. A hiding space? The chest was open, stuffed with a bouquet of folded and rolled papers. I was already reaching for it when my eyes caught a glimpse of my father's handwriting on one of the scrolls. My hand shook as I lifted the chest from the cabinet. It left a clean square amid the thick layer of dust on the cabinet's inside. Apparently the servants hadn't cleaned within. Perhaps they, like me, hadn't realized the headboard opened. Blowing dust off the topmost layer of papers... I picked up the first folded sheet, a love letter, from my father to my mother. I pulled out each paper, examining and arranging them in order by date. They were all love letters, from him to her, and a few from her to him, spanning a year or so in my parents' lives. Swallowing hard and stealing myself, I began to read. An hour later I stopped and lay down on the bed, and wept myself to sleep. When I awakened, the room was dark. And I was not afraid. A bad sign. You should not wander the palace alone, said the night lord. I sat up. He sat beside me on the bed, gazing at the window. The moon was high and bright through a smear of cloud. I must have slept for hours. I rubbed my face and said, Greatly daring, <laughs> I would like to think that we have an understanding, Lord Nahadoth. My reward was his smile, though he still did not turn to me. Respect, 
Yes, but there are more dangers in Sky than me. Some things are worth the risk. I looked at the bed. The pile of letters lay there, along with other small items I'd taken from the chest. A sachet of dried flowers, a lock of straight black hair that must have been my father's, a curl of paper that held several crossed out lines of poetry in my mother's hand, and a tiny silver pendant on a thin leather cord. The treasures of a woman in love. I picked up the pendant and tried again, unsuccessfully, to determine what it was. It looked like a rough, flattened lump, oblong with pointed ends, familiar somehow. A fruit stone, said Nahadov. He watched me now, sidelong. Yes, it did look like that. Apricot, perhaps, or ginkgo. I remembered then where I'd seen something similar. In gold, around Ra's Onchi's neck. Why? The fruit dies, but within lies the spark of new life. Enifa had power over life and death. I frowned in confusion. Perhaps the silver fruit stone was Enifa's symbol, like Etembus's white jade ring. But why would my mother possess a symbol of Enifa? Or rather, why would my father have given it to her? She was the strongest of us, Nahadoth murmured. He was gazing out at the night sky again, though it was clear his thoughts were somewhere else entirely. If he Tempest hadn't used poison, he never could have slain her outright. But she trusted him, loved him. He lowered his eyes, smiling gently, ruefully to himself. Then again, so did I. I nearly dropped the pendant. Here is what the priests taught me. Once upon a time, there were three great gods. Bright E. Tempest, Lord of Day, was the one destined by fate or the maelstrom or some unfathomable design to rule. All was well until Enifa, his upstart sister, decided that she wanted to rule in Bright E. Tempest's place. She convinced their brother, Nahadoth, to assist her, and together, with some of their godling children, they attempted a coup. E. Tempest, mightier than both his siblings combined, defeated them soundly. He slew Enifa, punished Nahadov and the rebels, and established an even greater peace, for without his dark brother and wild sister to appease, he was free to bring true light and order to all creation. But... Poison? Nahadov sighed. Behind him, his hair shifted restlessly, like curtains wafting in a night breeze. We created the weapon ourselves in our dalliances with humans, though we did not realize this for some time. The Night Lord descended to Earth, seeking entertainment. The demons, I whispered. Humans made that word an epithet. The demons were as beautiful and perfect as our God-born children, but mortal. Put into our bodies, their blood taught our flesh how to die. It was the only poison that could harm us. But the Night Lord's lover never forgave him. You hunted them down. We feared they would mingle with mortals, passing on the taint to their descendants until the entire human race became lethal to us. But Etempus kept one alive, in hiding. To murder one's own children, I shuddered. So the priest's story was true. And yet I could sense the shame in Nahadoth, 
the lingering pain. That meant my grandmother's version of the story was true, too. So Lord E. Tempest used this poison to subdue Enifa when she attacked him. She did not attack him. Queasiness. The world was tilting in my head. Then why? He lowered his gaze. His hair fell forward to obscure his face. And I was thrown back in time three nights to our first meeting. The smile that curved his lips now was not mad, but held such bitterness that it might as well have been. They quarreled, he said, over me. For half an instant, something changed in me. I looked at Nahadoth and did not see him as the powerful, unpredictable, deadly entity that he was. I wanted him, to entice him, to control him. I saw myself naked on green grass, my arms and legs wrapped around Nahadoth as he shuddered upon me, trapped and helpless in the pleasure of my flesh, mine. I saw myself caress his midnight hair and look up to meet my own eyes and smile in smug, possessive satisfaction. I rejected that image, that feeling, almost as soon as it came to my mind. But it was another warning. The maelstrom that begat us was slow, Nahadoth said. If he sensed my sudden unease, he gave no sign. I was born first, then Etempus. For uncountable eternities, he and I were alone in the universe. First enemies, then beloved. He liked it that way. I tried not to think of the priest's tale, tried not to wonder if Nahadoth was lying too though there was a feel of truth to his words that rang within me on an almost instinctive level. The three were more than siblings. They were forces of nature, opposed yet inextricably linked. I, an only child and a mortal, who had never had a beloved of her own, could not begin to understand their relationship, yet I felt compelled to try. When Enifa came along, Lord Etempus saw her as an interloper? Yes. Even though before her we felt our incompleteness. We were made to be three, not two. Etempus resented that as well. Then Nahadoth glanced at me sidelong. In the shadow of my body, for just an instant, the uncertain shift of his face resolved into a singular perfection of lines and features that made my breath catch. I had never seen anything so beautiful. At once, I understood why Etempus had killed Enifa to have him. Does it amuse you to hear that we can be just as selfish and prideful as humankind? There was an edge to Nahadoth's voice now. I barely noticed it. I could not look away from his face. We made you in our image, remember? All our flaws are yours. No, I said. All that surprises me are the lies I've been told. I would have expected the Dare to do a better job of preserving the truth. He leaned closer, slow, subtle. Something predatory was in his eyes, and I, entranced, was easy prey. Not every race of humankind worships E. Tempest by choice, after all. I would have thought their Enu at least would know the old ways. I would have thought so, too. I clenched my hand around the silver fruit stone, feeling lightheaded. I knew that once my people had been heretics. That was why the Amun called races like mine darkling. 
We had accepted the bride only to save ourselves when the Aramari threatened us with annihilation. But what Nahadoth implied, that some of my people had known the real reason for the gods' war all along and had hidden it from me? No, that I could not, did not want to believe. There had always been whispers about me, doubts, my almond hair, my almond eyes, my almond mother, who might have inculcated me with her Aramary ways. I had fought so hard to win my people's respect. I thought I had succeeded. No, I whispered. My grandmother would have told me. Wouldn't she? So many secrets around you, the Night Lord whispered. So many lies, like veils. Shall I strip them away for you? His hand touched my hip. I could not help jumping. His nose brushed mine, his breath tickling my lips. You want me. If I had not already been trembling, I would have begun. No. So many lies. On the last word, his tongue licked out to brush my lips. Every muscle in my body seemed to tighten. I could not help whimpering. I saw myself on the green grass again, under him, pinned by him. I saw myself on a bed, the very bed on which I sat. I saw him take me on my mother's bed, his face savage and his movements violent, and I did not own him or control him. How had I ever dared to imagine that I might? He used me and I was helpless, crying out in pain and want. I was his and he devoured me, relishing my sanity as he tore it apart and swallowed it in oozing chunks. He would destroy me, and I would love every minute of it. Oh, gods! The irony of my oath was lost on me. I reached up, burying my hands in his black oar to push at him. I felt cool night air and thought my hands would just go on touching nothing. Instead, I encountered solid flesh, a warm body, cloth. I clutched at the ladder to remind me of reality and danger. It was so hard not to pull him closer. Please don't. Please. Oh, God, please don't. He still loomed over me. His mouth still brushed mine so that I felt his smile. Is that a command? I was shaking with fear and desire and effort. The last finally paid off as I managed to turn my face away from his. His cool breath tickled my neck, and I felt it down my whole body, the most intimate of caresses. I had never wanted a man so much, never, in my whole life. I had never been so afraid. Please, I said again. He kissed me, very lightly on my neck. I tried not to moan, and failed miserably. I ached for him. But then he sighed, rose, and walked over to the window. The black tendrils of his power lingered on me a moment longer. I had been almost buried in his darkness, but as he moved away, the tendrils released me, reluctantly it seemed, and settled back into the usual restlessness of his aura. I wrapped my arms around myself, wondering if I would ever stop shivering. Your mother was a true Aramary, said Nahadoth. That shocked me out of desire as suddenly as a slap. She was all that Descartes wanted and more, he continued. Their goals were never the same, but in every other way, she was more than a match for her father. 
He loves her still. I swallowed. My legs were shaky, so I did not stand. But I made myself straighten from the hunch that I had unconsciously adopted. Then why did he kill her? You think it was him? I opened my mouth to demand an explanation, but before I could, he turned to me. In the light from the window, his body was a silhouette, except for his eyes. I saw them clearly, onyx black and glittering with unearthly knowing and malice. No, little pawn, said the night lord, little tool. No more secrets, not without an alliance. That is for your safety as well as ours. Shall I tell you the terms? Somehow, I knew that he smiled. Yes, I think I should. We want your life, sweet Yena. Offer it to us and you'll have all the answers you want. And two, the chance for revenge. That's what you truly want, isn't it? A soft, cruel chuckle. You're more Aramary than Descartes sees. I began to tremble again, not out of fear this time. As before, he faded away, his image disappearing long before his presence did. When I could no longer feel him, I put away my mother's belongings and straightened the room so that no one would know I had been there. I wanted to keep the silver fruit stone, but I could think of nowhere safer to hide it than the compartment where it had lain undiscovered for decades. So I left it and the letters in their hiding place. When I was finally done, I went back to my room. It took all my willpower not to run. 11. Mother Tavril told me that sometimes Sky eats people. It was built by the Enifada, after all, and living in a home built by angry gods necessarily entails some risk. On nights, when the moon is black and the stars hide behind clouds, the stone walls stop glowing. Bright Etempus is powerless then. The darkness never lingers, a few hours at most. But while it lasts, most Aramary keep to their rooms and speak softly. If they must travel Sky's corridors, they move quickly and furtively, always watching their step. For you see, wholly at random, the floors open up and swallow the unwary. Searchers go into the dead spaces underneath, but no bodies are ever found. I now know that this is true, but more important, I know where the lost ones have gone. Please tell me about my mother, I said to Varane. He looked up from the contraption he was working on. It looked like a spidery mass of jointed metal and leather. I had no inkling of its purpose. Tavril told me he sent you to her room last night, he said, shifting on his stool to face me. His expression was thoughtful. What is it you're looking for? I made note. Tavril was not entirely trustworthy. But that did not surprise me. Tavril doubtless had his own battles to fight. The truth? You don't believe Descartes? Would you? He chuckled. <laughs> you have no reason to believe me either. I have no reason to believe anyone in this whole reeking Amon Warren. But since I cannot leave, I have no choice but to crawl through the muck. Oh, my. You almost sound like her. To my surprise, he seemed pleased by my rudeness. Indeed, he began smiling, though with an air of condescension. Too crude, though. Too straightforward. 
Kenneth's insults were so subtle that you wouldn't realize she'd called you dirt until hours afterward. My mother never insulted anyone unless she had good reason. What did you say to provoke her? He paused for only a heartbeat, but I noted with satisfaction that his smile faded. What do you want to know? He asked. Why did Dakarta have my mother killed? The only person who could answer that question is Dakarta. Do you plan to talk to him? Eventually I would, but two could play the game of answering a question with a question. Why did she come here that last night, the night Dakarta finally realized she wasn't coming back? I had expected the surprise in Varane's face. What I had not expected was the cold fury that swiftly followed on its heels. Who have you been talking to? The servants? Sia? Sometimes the truth can throw an opponent off balance. Nahadoth. He flinched, and then his eyes narrowed. I see. He'll kill you, you know. That's his favorite pastime, to toy with any Aramary foolish enough to try and tame him. Samina has no intention of taming him. The more monstrous he becomes, the happier she is. He spread the last fool who fell in love with him all over the center yard, I hear. I remembered Nahadoth's lips on my throat and fought to suppress a shudder, only half succeeding. Death, as a consequence of lying with a god, wasn't something I had considered, but it did not surprise me. A mortal man's strength had limits. He spent himself and slept. He could be a good lover, but even his best skills were only guesswork. For every caress that sent a woman's head into the clouds, he might try ten that brought her back to earth. Nahadoth would bring me into the clouds and keep me there. He would drag me further into the cold, airless dark that was his true domain. And if I suffocated there, if my flesh burst or my mind broke, well, Varane was right. I'd have only myself to blame. I gave Varane a rueful smile letting him see my very real fear. Yes, Nahadoth probably will kill me if you Aramary don't beat him to it. If that troubles you, you could always help me by answering my questions. Varane fell silent for a long moment, his thoughts unfathomable behind the mask of his face. Finally, he surprised me again, rising from his workbench and going to one of the enormous windows. From this one, we could see the whole of the city and the mountains beyond. I can't say I remember the night well, he said. It was twenty years ago. I had only just come to Sky then, newly posted by the Scrivener's College. Please tell me all you can recall, I said. Scriveners learned several mortal tongues as children before they began learning the God's language. This helps them understand the flexibility of language and of the mind itself, for there are many concepts that exist in some languages that cannot even be approximated in others. This is how the God's tongue works. It allows the conceptualization of the impossible, and this is why the best Scriveners can never be trusted. It was raining that night. I remember because rain doesn't often touch sky. The heaviest clouds usually drop below us but Kenneth got soaked just between her carriage and the entrance. There was a trail of water along the floor of every corridor she walked. 
which meant that he had watched her pass, I realized. Either he'd been lurking in a side corridor while she went by, or he followed close enough in her wake that the water hadn't dried. Hadn't Sia said Dakarta emptied the hallways that night? Varane must have disobeyed that order. Everyone knew why she had come, or thought they did. No one expected that marriage to last. It seemed unfathomable that a woman so strong, a woman raised to rule, would give it all up for nothing. In the reflection of the glass, Varane looked up at me. No offense meant. For an Aramary, it was almost polite. None taken. He smiled thinly. But it was for him, you see. The reason she came that night, her husband, your father, she didn't come to reclaim her position. She came because he had the walking death and she wanted Descartes to save him. I stared at him, feeling slapped. She even brought him with her. One of the forecourt servants glanced inside the coach and saw him in there, sweating and feverish, probably in the third stage. The journey alone must have stressed him physically, accelerating the disease's course. She gambled everything on Descartes' aid. I swallowed. I'd known that my father had contracted the death at some point. I'd known that my mother had fled from Skye at the height of her power, banished for the crime of loving beneath herself. But that the two events were linked? She must have succeeded then. No. When she left to return to Dar, she was angry. Descartes was in such a fury as I've never seen. I thought there would have been deaths. But he simply ordered that Kenneth was to be struck from the family rolls, not only as his heir, that had already been done, but as an Aramary altogether. He ordered me to burn off her blood sigil, which can be done from a distance, and which I did. He even made a public announcement. It was the talk of society, the first time any full blood has been disowned in, oh, centuries. I shook my head slowly. And my father? As far as I could tell, he was still sick when she left. But my father had survived the walking death. Surviving was not unheard of, but it was rare, especially among those who had reached the third stage. Perhaps Descartes had changed his mind. If he had ordered it, the palace physicians would have ridden out after the carriage, caught up to it, and brought it back. Descartes could have even ordered the Enifada to... Wait. Wait. So that's why she came. Lorraine said. He turned from the window to face me, sober. For him. There was no grand conspiracy to it and no mystery. Any servant who'd been here long enough could have told you this. So why were you so anxious to know that you'd ask me? Because I thought you'd tell me more than a servant, I replied. I struggled to keep my voice even so that he would not know my suspicions, if sufficiently motivated. Is that why you goaded me? He shook his head and sighed. Well, it's good to see you've inherited some Aramary qualities. They seem to be useful here. He offered a sardonic incline of the head. Anything else? I was dying to know more, but not from him. Still, it would not do to appear hasty. Do you agree with Descartes? I asked just to make conversation. But my mother would have been more harsh in dealing with that heretic? Oh, yes. I blinked in surprise, and he smiled. Kenneth was like Descartes. 
one of the few Aramary who actually took our role as E. Tempest's chosen seriously. She was death on unbelievers, death on anyone, really, who threatened the peace or her power. He shook his head, his smile nostalgic now. You think Samina's bad? <laughs> Samina has no vision. Your mother was purpose incarnate. He was enjoying himself again, reading the discomfort on my face like a sigil. Perhaps I was still young enough to see her through the worshipful eyes of childhood, but the ways I'd heard my mother describe since coming to Sky simply did not fit my memories. I remembered a gentle, warm woman full of wry humor. She could be ruthless, oh yes, as befitted the wife of any ruler, especially under the circumstances in Dar at the time. But to hear her compared favorably against Samina and praised by Dakarta, that was not the same woman who had raised me. That was another woman, with my mother's name and background, but an entirely different soul. Varane specialized in magics that could affect the soul. Did you do something to my mother? I wanted to ask, but that would have been far, far too simple an explanation. You're wasting your time, you know, Varane said. He spoke softly, and his smile had faded during my long silence. Your mother is dead. You're still alive. You should spend more time trying to stay that way, and less time trying to join her. Was that what I was doing? Good day, Scrivener Varane, I said, and left. I got lost then, figuratively and literally. Sky is not generally an easy place in which to get lost. The corridors all look the same, true. The lifts get confused sometimes, carrying riders where they want to be rather than where they intend to go. I'm told this was especially a problem for lovesick couriers. Still, the halls are normally thick with servants who are happy to aid anyone wearing a high blood mark. I did not ask for help. I knew this was foolish, but some part of me did not want direction. Varane's words had cut deep, and as I walked through the corridors, I worried at the wounds with my thoughts. It was true. I had neglected the inheritance contest in favor of learning more about my mother. Learning the truth would not bring the dead back to life, but it certainly could get me killed. Perhaps Varane was right, and my behavior reflected some suicidal tendency. It had been less than a turn of the season since my mother's death. In Dar, I would have had time and family to help me mourn properly, but my grandfather's invitation had cut that short. Here in Sky, I hid my grief, but that did not mean I felt it any less. In this frame of mind, I stopped and found myself at the palace library. Tavril had shown me this on my first day in Sky. Under ordinary circumstances, I would have been awed. The library occupied a space larger than the Temple of Sar Enanem back in my land. Sky's library contained more books, scrolls, tablets, and spheres than I had seen in my entire life. But I had been in need of a more peculiar kind of knowledge since my arrival in Sky, and the accumulated lore of the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms could not help me with that. Still, for some reason, I now felt drawn to the place. I wandered through the library's entrance hall and was greeted only by the sounds of my own faintly echoing footsteps. The ceiling was thrice the height of a man, braced by enormous round pillars and a maze of floor-to-ceiling bookcases. 
both cases and pillars, were covered by shelf upon shelf of books and scrolls, some accessible only by the ladders that I saw in each corner. Here and there were tables and chairs where one might lounge and read for hours. Yet there seemed to be no one else around, which surprised me. Were the Aramary so inured to luxury that they took even this treasure trove for granted? I stopped to examine a wall of tomes as thick as my head. Then I realized I couldn't read a single one. Cinemite, the Amun language, had become the common tongue since the Aramary's ascension, but most nations were still allowed their own languages so long as they taught Cinemite too. These looked like Timon. I checked the next wall, Kenti. Somewhere in the place, there was probably a Darren shelf, but I had no idea of where to begin finding it. Are you lost? I jumped and turned to see a short, plump, old Amun woman a few feet away, peering around the curve of a pillar. I hadn't noticed her at all. By the sour look on her face, she'd probably thought herself alone in the library, too. I... I realized I had no idea what to say. I hadn't come in for any purpose. To stall, I said, Is there a shelf here in Darren, or at least... Where are the cinemite books? Wordlessly, the old woman pointed right behind me. I turned and saw three shelves of Darren books. The cinemite starts around the corner. Feeling supremely foolish, I nodded thanks and studied the Darren shelf. For several minutes, I stared at them before realizing that half were poetry, and the other half, collections of tales I'd heard all my life. Nothing useful. Are you looking for something in particular? The woman stood right beside me now. I started a bit, since I hadn't heard her move. But at her question, I suddenly realized there was something I could learn from the library. Information about the gods' war, I said. Religious texts are in the chapel, not here. If anything, now the woman looked more sour. Perhaps she was the librarian, in which case I might have offended her. It was clear the library saw little enough traffic as it was without being mistaken for someplace else. I don't want religious texts, I said quickly, hoping to placate her. I want historical accounts, death records, journals, letters, scholarly interpretations, anything written at the time. The woman narrowed her eyes at me for a moment. She was the only adult I'd seen in Skye who was shorter than me, which might have comforted me somewhat if not for the blatant hostility in her expression. I marveled at the hostility, for she was dressed in the same simple white uniform as most of the servants. Usually, all it took was the sight of the full-blood mark on my brow to make them polite to the point of obsequiousness. There are some things like that, she said, but any complete accounts of the war have been heavily censored by the priests. There might have been a few untouched resources left in the private collections, it said Lord Descartes keeps the most valuable of these in his quarters. I should have known. I'd like to see anything you have. Nahadoth had made me curious. I knew nothing of the God's War that the priests hadn't told me. Perhaps, if I read the accounts myself, I could sift some truth from the lies. The old woman pursed her lips, thoughtful, and then gestured curtly for me to follow her. This way. I followed her through the winding aisles, my awe growing as I realized just how truly big the place was. 
this library must hold all the knowledge of the world. My dour companion snorted. A few millennia worth. From a few pockets of humanity, nothing more. And that, picked and sorted, trimmed and twisted, to suit the tastes of those in power. There's truth even in tainted knowledge, if one reads carefully. Only if one knows the knowledge is tainted in the first place. Turning another corner, the old woman stopped. We had reached some sort of nexus amid the maze. Before us, several bookcases had been arranged back to back as a titanic six-sided column. Each bookcase was a good five feet wide, tall and sturdy enough to help support the ceiling that was twenty feet or more above. The whole structure rivaled the trunk of a centuries-old tree. There is what you want. I took a step toward the column and then stopped, abruptly uncertain. When I turned back, I realized the old woman was watching me with a disconcertingly intent gaze. Her eyes were the color of low-grade pewter. Excuse me, I said, spurred by some instinct. There's a lot here. Where would you suggest I begin? She scowled and said, How should I know? Before turning away. She vanished amid the stacks before I could recover from the shock of such blatant rudeness. But I had more important concerns than one cranky librarian, so I turned my attention back to the column. Choosing a shelf at random, I skimmed the spines for titles that sounded interesting and began my hunt. Two hours later, I had moved to the floor in the interim, spreading books and scrolls around myself, exasperation set in. Groaning, I flung myself back amid the circle of books, sprawling over them in a way that surely would incense the librarian if she saw me. The old woman's comments had made me think there would be little mention of the God's War, but this was anything but the case. There were complete eyewitness accounts of the war. There were accounts of accounts, and critical analyses of those accounts. There was so much information, in fact, that if I had begun reading that day and continued without stopping— it would have taken me months to read it all. And try as I might, I could not sift the truth from what I'd read. All of the accounts cited the same series of events, the weakening of the world, in which every living thing, from forests to strong young men, had grown ill and begun to die. The three-day storm, the shattering and reformation of the sun. On the third day, the skies had gone quiet, and a tempest appeared to explain the new order of the world. What was missing were the events leading up to the war. Here, I could see the priests had been busy, for I could find no description of the gods' relationship prior to the war. There were no mentions of customs or beliefs in the days of the three. Those few texts that even touched on the subject simply cited what Bright Etempis had told the first era Mary. Enifa was instigator and villain, Nahadoth, her willing co-conspirator, Lordy Tempest, the hero, betrayed and then triumphant. I had wasted more time. Rubbing my tired eyes, I debated whether to try again the next day or just give up altogether. But as I mustered my strength to get up, something caught my eye. On the ceiling, I could see from this angle where two of the bookcases joined to form the column. But they were not actually joined. There was a gap between them, perhaps six inches wide. Puzzled, I sat up and peered closer at the column. It appeared as it always had, a set of huge, heavily laden bookcases arranged back to back in a rough circle, joined tight with no gaps.
another of Sky's secrets? I got to my feet. The trick was amazingly simple. Once I took a good look, the bookcases were made of a heavy dark wood that was naturally black in color. Probably Darren, I guessed belatedly. Once upon a time, we'd been famous for it. Through the gaps, I could see the backs of the other bookcases, also black wood. Because the edges of the gaps were black and the backs of the bookcases were black, the gaps themselves were all but invisible, even from a few steps away. But knowing the gaps were there, I peered through the nearest gap and saw a wide, white-floored space corralled by the bookcases. Had someone tried to hide this space? But that made no sense. The trick was so simple that someone, probably many someones, must have found the inner column before. That suggested the goal was not to conceal, but to misdirect, to prevent casual browsers and passers-by from finding whatever was within the column. Only those who knew the visual trick was there, or spent enough time looking for the information, would find it. The old woman's words came back to me: "If no one knows the knowledge is tainted in the first place." Yes, plain to see. If one knew something was there to find, the gap was narrow. I was grateful for once to be boy-shaped because that made it easy to wriggle between the shelves. But then I stumbled and nearly fell because once I was inside the column, I saw what it truly hid. And then I heard a voice. Except it wasn't a voice, and he asked, "Do you love me?" And I said, "Come, and I will show you." And opened my arms. He came to me and pulled me hard against him. And I did not see the knife in his hand. No, no, there was no knife. We had no need of such things. No, there was a knife. Later, and the taste of blood was bright and strange in my mouth, as I looked up to see his terrible, terrible gaze. But what did it mean that he made love to me first? I stumbled back against the opposite wall, struggling to breathe and think around blazing terror and inexplicable nausea and the yawning urge to clutch my head and scream. The final warning, yes. I am not usually so dense, but you must understand, it was a bit much to deal with. Do you need help? My mind latched on to the voice of the old librarian with the ferocity of a drowning victim. I must have looked a sight as I whipped around to face her. I was swaying on my feet, my mouth hanging open and dumb, my hands outstretched and forming claws in front of me. The old woman, who stood bracketed by one of the bookcase gaps, gazed in at me impassively. With an effort, I closed my mouth, lowered my hands, and straightened from the bizarre half-crouch into which I'd sunk. I was still shaking inside. But some semblance of dignity was returning to me. I, no, I managed after a moment. No, I'm, all right. She said nothing. Just kept watching me. I wanted to tell her to go away, but my eyes were drawn back to the thing that had shocked me so. Across the back of a bookcase, the bright lord of order gazed at me. It was just artwork, an Amun-style embossing. Gold leaf layered onto an outline chiseled in a white marble slab. Still, the artist had captured Etempus in astounding life-size detail. He stood in an elegant warrior stance, his form broad and powerfully muscled, his hands resting on the hilt of a huge straight sword. 
eyes like lanterns penned me from the solemn perfection of his face. I had seen renderings of him in the priest's books, but not like this. They made him slimmer, thin-featured like an almond. They always drew him smiling, and they never made his expression so cold. I put my hands behind me to push myself upright and felt more marble under my fingers. When I turned, the shock was not so great this time. I half expected what I saw. Inlaid, obsidian and a riot of tiny star-like diamonds, all forming a lithe, sensual figure. His hands were flung outstretched from his sides, nearly lost among the flaring cloak of hair and power. I could not see the exulting, screaming figure's face, for it was tilted upward, dominated by that open, howling mouth. But I knew him anyhow. Except I frowned in confusion, reaching up to touch what might have been a swirl of cloth or a rounded breast. E. Tempest forced him into a single shape, said the old woman, her voice very soft. When he was free, he was all things beautiful and terrible. I had never heard a more fitting description. But there was a third slab to my right. I saw it from the corner of my eye. Had seen it from the moment I'd slipped between the shelves. Had avoided looking at it, for reasons that had nothing to do with my rational self and everything to do with what I now, deep down, in the unreasoning core of my instincts suspected. I made myself turn to face the third slab while the old woman watched me. Compared to her brothers, Enifa's image was demure, undramatic. In gray marble profile she sat, clad in a simple shift, her face downcast. Only on closer observation did one notice the subtleties. Her hand held a small sphere, an object immediately recognizable to anyone who'd ever seen Sia's orrery. And I understood now why he treasured his collection so much. Her posture, taut, with ready energy, more crouched than sit, her eyes, which despite her downturned face, glanced up sidelong at the viewer. There was something about her gaze that was not seductive, it was too frank for that, nor wary, but evaluative, yes. She looked at me and through me, measuring all that she saw. With a shaking hand, I reached up to touch her face, more rounded than mine, prettier, but the lines were the same as what I saw in mirrors. The hair was longer, but the curl was right. The artist had set her irises with pale green jade. If the skin had been brown instead of marble, I swallowed, trembling harder still. We hadn't intended to tell you yet, said the old woman, right behind me now, though she should have been too fat to fit through the gap. Would have been, if she had been human. Pure chance that you decided to come to the library now? I suppose I could have found a way to steer you elsewhere, but... I heard rather than saw her shrug. You would have found out eventually. I sank to the floor, huddling against the tempest wall as if he would protect me. I was cold all over, my thoughts screaming and skittering every which way. Making that first crucial connection had broken my ability to make others. This is how madness feels. I understood. Will you kill me? I whispered to the old woman. There was no mark on her forehead. I had missed that, still used to the absence of a mark, not its presence. I should have noticed. She'd had a different shape in my dream, but I knew her now. 
Kurue, the wise, leader of the Enifada. Why would I do that? We've invested far too much in creating you. A hand fell on my shoulder. I twitched. But you're no good to us insane. So I was not surprised to feel darkness close over me. I relaxed and grateful. Let it come. 12. Sanity Once upon a time there was a... Once upon a time there was a... Once upon a time there was a... Stop this. It's undignified. Once upon a time there was a little girl who had two older siblings. The oldest was dark and wild and glorious, if somewhat uncouth. The other was filled with all the brightness of all the suns that ever were, and he was very stern and upright. They were much older than her, and very close to one another, even though in the past they had fought viciously. We were young and foolish then, said second sibling, whenever the little girl asked him about it. Sex was more fun, said first sibling. This sort of statement made second sibling very cross, which of course was why first sibling said it. In this way did the little girl come to know and love them both. This is an approximation, you realize. This is what your mortal mind can comprehend. Thus went the little girl's childhood. They had no parents, the three of them, and so the little girl raised herself. She drank glimmering stuff when she was thirsty and lay down in soft places when she got tired. When she was hungry, first sibling showed her how to draw sustenance from energies that suited her. And when she was bored, second sibling taught her all the lore that had come into being. This was how she came to know names. The place in which they lived was called existence, as opposed to the place from which they had come, which was a great shrieking mass of nothingness called maelstrom. The toys and foods she conjured were possibility, and what a delightful substance that was. With it, she could build anything she needed, even changed the nature of existence, though she quickly learned to ask before doing this, because second sibling got upset when she altered his carefully ordered rules and processes. First sibling did not care. Over time, it came to be that the little girl spent more time with first sibling than with second, because second did not seem to like her as much. This is difficult for him, first sibling said when she complained. We have been alone, he and I. For so very long. Now you are here, and that changes everything. He does not like change. This the little girl had already come to understand, and this was why her siblings so often fought with each other, because first sibling loved change. Often, first sibling would grow bored with existence and transform it, or turn it inside out just to see the other side. Second sibling would rage at first sibling whenever this happened, and first sibling would laugh at his fury, and before the little girl could blink, they would be on each other tearing and blasting until something changed, and then they would be clutching and gasping, and whenever this happened, the little girl would patiently wait for them to finish so they could play with her again. In time, the little girl became a woman. She had learned to live with her two siblings, each in their own way, dancing wild with first sibling and growing adept at discipline alongside second. Now she made her own way beyond their peculiarities. She had stepped in between her siblings during the battles, fighting them to measure her strength and loving them when the fighting turned to joy. She had, 
though they did not know it, gone off to create her own separate existences, where sometimes she pretended that she had no siblings. There, she could arrange possibility into stunning new shapes and meanings that she was sure neither of her siblings could have created themselves. In time, she grew adept at this, and her creation so pleased her that she began to bring them into the realm where her siblings lived. She did this subtly at first, taking great care to fit them into second siblings' orderly spaces and arrangements in a way that might not offend him. First sibling, as usual delighted by anything new, urged her to do far more. However, the woman found that she had developed a taste for some of second siblings' order. She incorporated first sibling suggestions, but gradually, purposefully, observing how each minute change triggered others, sometimes causing growth in unexpected and wonderful ways. Sometimes the changes destroyed everything, forcing her to start over. She mourned the loss of her toys, her treasures, but she always began the process again. Like first sibling's darkness and second sibling's light, this particular gift was something only she could master. The compulsion to do it was as essential to her as breathing, as much a part of her as her own soul. Second sibling, once he got over his annoyance at her tinkering, asked her about it. It's called life, she said, liking the sound of the word. He smiled, pleased, for to name a thing is to give it order and purpose, and he understood then that she had done so to offer him respect. But it was to first sibling that she went for help with her most ambitious experiment. First sibling was, as she had expected, eager to assist. But to her surprise, there was a sober warning as well. If this works, it will change many things. You realize that, don't you? Nothing in our lives will ever be the same. First sibling paused, waiting to see that she understood. And abruptly, she did. Second sibling did not like change. Nothing can stay the same forever, she said. We were not made to be still. Even he must realize that. First sibling only sighed and said no more. The experiment worked. The new life, mewling and shaking and uttering vehement protests, was beautiful in its unfinished way, and the woman knew that what she had begun was good and right. She named the creature Sia, because that was the sound of the wind and she called his type of being a child, meaning that it had the potential to grow into something like themselves, and meaning, too, that they could create more of them. And as always with life, this minute change triggered many, many others. The most profound of them was something even she had not anticipated. They became a family. For a time, they were all happy with that, even second sibling but not all families last. So there was love, once, more than love, and now there is more than hate. Mortals have no words for what we gods feel. Gods have no words for such things. But love like that doesn't just disappear, does it? No matter how powerful the hate, there is always a little love left underneath. Yes, horrible, isn't it? When the body suffers an assault, it often reacts with a fever. Assaults to the mind can have the same effect. Thus, I lay shivering and insensible for the better part of three days. 
A few moments from this time appear in my memory as still life portraits, some in color and some in shades of gray. A solitary figure standing near my bedroom window, huge and alert with inhuman vigilance, Jacquard. Blink, and the same image returns in negative, the same figure framed by glowing white walls and a black rectangle of night beyond the window. Blink, and there is another image, the old woman from the library standing over me, peering carefully into my eyes. Jacquard stands in the background watching, a thread of conversation, disconnected from any image. If she dies, then we start over. What's a few more decades? Nahadoth will be displeased. A rough, rueful laugh. <laughs> you have a great gift for understatement, sister. Sia, too. That is Sia's own fault. I warned him not to get attached, the little fool. Silence for a moment, full of reproach. There is nothing foolish about hope. Silence in reply, though this silence feels faintly of shame. One of the images in my head is different from the others. This one is dark again, but the walls too have gone dark, and there is a feeling to the image, a sense of ominous weight and pressure and low gathering rage. Jacquard stands away from the window this time, near a wall. Her head is bowed in respect. In the foreground stands Nahadoth, gazing down at me in silence. Once again his face has transformed. And I understand now that this is because Etempus can only control him so much. He must change. He is change. He could allow me to see his fury, for it weighs the very air, making my skin itch. Instead, he is expressionless. His skin has turned warm brown, and his eyes are layered shades of black, and his lips make me crave soft, ripe fruit. The perfect face for seducing lonely Dare girls though it would work better if his eyes held any warmth. He says nothing that I recall. When my fever breaks at last and I awaken, he is gone, and the weight of his rage has lifted, though it never goes away entirely. That, too, Brighty Tempest cannot control. Dawn. I sat up, feeling heavy and thick-headed. Chakarn, still near the window, glanced back at me over her shoulder. You're awake! I turned to see Sia curled in a chair beside the bed. Bonelessly, he unfolded himself and came to me, touching my forehead. The fever's broken. How do you feel? I responded with the first coherent thought my mind could muster. What am I? He lowered his eyes. I'm not supposed to tell you. I pushed away the covers and got up. For a moment, I was dizzy as blood rushed to my head and away. But then it passed, and I stumbled toward the bathroom. I want you both out of here by the time I'm done, I said over my shoulder. Neither Sia nor Jacquard responded. In the bathroom, I stood over the sink for several painful moments, debating whether to vomit, though the emptiness of my stomach eventually settled the matter. My hands shook while I bathed and dried myself, and drank some water straight from the tap. I came out of the bathroom naked and was not at all surprised to find both Enafada still there. Sia had drawn up his knees to sit on the edge of my bed, looking young and troubled. Jacquard had not moved from the window. The words must be phrased as a command, she said, if you truly want us to leave. I don't care what you do.
I found underthings and put them on. In the closet, I took the first outfit I saw, an elegant almond sheath dress with patterns meant to disguise my minimal curves. I picked up boots that didn't match it and sat down to work them onto my feet. Where are you going? Sia asked. He touched my arm, anxious. I shook my arm as I would to get rid of an insect, and he drew back. You don't even know, do you, Yena? Back to the library, I said. Though I picked that at random because he'd been right. I hadn't had a destination in mind other than a way. Yena, I know you're upset. What am I? I stood with one boot on and rounded on him. He flinched, possibly because I'd bent to scream the words into his face. What? What? What am I? Gods damn you! What? Your body is human, interrupted Jacquard. Now it was my turn to flinch. She stood near the bed, gazing at me with the same impassivity she'd always shown, though there was something subtly protective in the way she stood behind Sia. Your mind is human. The soul is the only change. What does that mean? It means you're the same person you always were. Sia looked both subdued and sullen. An ordinary mortal woman. I look like her. Jacquard nodded. She might have been reporting on the weather. The presence of Enifer's soul in your body has had some influence. I shivered, feeling ill again. Something inside me that was not me. I rubbed at my arms, resisting the urge to use my nails. Can you take it out? Shakarn blinked, and I sensed that for the first time I'd surprised her. Yes, but your body has grown accustomed to two souls. It might not survive having only one again. Two souls? Somehow that was better. I was not an empty thing animated solely by some alien force. Something in me, at least, was me. Can you try? Yena. Sia reached for my hand, though he seemed to think better of it when I stepped back. Even we don't know what would happen if we take the soul out. We thought at first that her soul would simply consume yours, but that clearly hasn't happened. I must have looked confused. You're still sane, said Jacquard. Something inside me, eating me. I half fell onto the bed, dry heaving unproductively for several moments. The instant this passed, I pushed myself up and paced, limping with my one boot. I could not be still. I rubbed at my temples, tugged at my hair, wondering how much longer I would stay sane with such thoughts in my mind. And you're still you, Sia said urgently, half following me as I paced. You're the daughter Kenneth would have had. You don't have Enifa's memories or personality. You don't think like her. That means you're strong, Yena. That comes from you, not her. I laughed wildly. It sounded like a sob. How would you know? He stopped walking, his eyes soft and mournful. If you were her, he said, you would love me. I stopped too, pacing and breathing. And me, said Jacquard, and Kurue. Enifa loved all her children even the ones who eventually betrayed her. I did not love Jacquard or Kurue. I let out the breath I'd held, but I was shaking again, though part of that was from hunger. Sia's hand brushed mine, tentative. 
When I did not pull away this time, he sighed and took hold of me, pulling me back to the bed to sit down. You could have gone your whole life never knowing, he said, reaching up to stroke my hair. You would have grown older and loved some mortal, maybe had mortal children and loved those, too, and died in your sleep as a toothless old woman. That was what we wanted for you, Yena. It's what you would have had if Dakarta hadn't brought you here. That forced our hand. I turned to him. This close, the impulse was too strong to resist. I cupped his cheek in my hand and leaned up to kiss his forehead. He started in surprise, but then smiled shyly, his cheek warming under my palm. I smiled back. Barain had been right. He was so easy to love. Tell me everything, I whispered. He flinched, as if struck. Perhaps the magic that bound him to obey Aramary commands had some physical effect. Perhaps it even hurt. Either way, there was a different kind of pain in his eyes as he realized I had issued the command deliberately. But I had not been specific. He could have told me anything. The history of the universe from its inception, the number of colors in a rainbow, the words that cause mortal flesh to shatter like stone. I had left him that much freedom. Instead... He told me the truth.